This week on Developer Weekly. People don't realize this, but Microsoft is running on its own backbone network. So all of these regions are connected by Microsoft's own fiber under the ocean and you name it. This episode is brought to you by me. If you like this show and you want to support it, please visit my courses on Pluralsight and buy my new book, 200 Things Developers Should Know, which is about programming, career, troubleshooting, dealing with managers, health, and much more. You can find my Pluralsight courses and the book over at www.developerweeklypodcast.com about. That is www.developerweeklypodcast.com about. Welcome to another episode of Developer Weekly. This week, I'm talking with Alex Mang about Azure. Alex is a software developer, international speaker, entrepreneur, and Microsoft MVP and regional director. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Barry. No, it's totally my pleasure. So in your bio, it says that you are a Microsoft regional director. Now, I know that can be a bit confusing for folks where they think that maybe you work for Microsoft or something, <laughs> but I know that's not the case. Can you maybe explain what a Microsoft regional director is? It's my pleasure to do so. And honestly, in my opinion, it's one of the funniest title ever. First and foremost, I am very appreciative to be part of the regional director program. I'm a member of the regional director program. But just like you said, the title can be super confusing. Uh, to clarify, first and foremost, I do not work for Microsoft. I'm a member <laughs> of a program that Microsoft has created for non-Microsoft employees, and that's one of the exclusive requirements. Second, I do not own a region. And third, my wife knows this for a fact, I don't direct anything, especially not our kids. <laughs> <laughs> so it's effectively a program that Microsoft has put together for what they call exceptional um, entrepreneurs, um, people who are like-minded like and who have a business-oriented suit. So unlike the Microsoft Most Valuable Professional, the MVP program, for example, which is a bit more in-depth of a particular knowledge and very technical, the regional director program is a bit more about the breadth of technologies. So rather than you only controlling or being an expert in, say, Azure or software development, you'd be an expert in multiple fields at the same time, and you're also very much business-oriented. Right. So it's more about the big picture. It is indeed more about the big picture and the implementation of technology, the understanding of the market, and figuring out ways in which you can take Microsoft as a business big tech industry leader uh, further on in either new markets or in new challenges or by implementing their technologies in God knows what other ways. Ah, okay, yeah. So as a regional director, you get to help Microsoft from uh, the bigger picture point of view uh, from technology and business. I think you could say that, and I think that's a fair assessment. Um, there's no ex expectation from either MVPs or Microsoft, or Microsoft regional directors to be advocates of any source, especially not marketing um, um, gizmos, right? We, we are not here to tell how cool and great Microsoft is because we're a member of a program. It actually works the other way around. We use their technology maybe in unforeseen ways, and we implement it either in communities or in places where you would not normally expect it. We work closely with the subsidiaries as much as we can. We create our own businesses on top of their technologies. And if we have some interesting and valuable points, then there's a chance that you become part of the regional director program. 
Yeah, yeah. That's for uh, for Microsoft MVPs. That's also a misconception, I think, that people think that it's all about marketing. But I sometimes say that MVPs are the first uh, testing tier of Microsoft. So we we try stuff out, and like you say, we sometimes use it in uh, unexpected ways, which is useful for Microsoft. Very much so. I think we are the canaries, both yourself and myself and all the fellow MVPs. We're probably the canaries out there who test out the technologies when it, uh, which Microsoft is creating when it is still in a completely immature form. And come on, let's be, let's be honest here. Not everything they create when it's still in an alpha or beta phase is production ready. So oh, we are no. there to, um, number one, test it out, offer feedback, and number two, which at least I'm doing, promote it if it is a good, valuable technology. I don't always talk about Microsoft. Sometimes I talk about different technologies, but I do have, and I'm going to be very subjective, obviously, I do have an inclination towards Microsoft because in my career or as a software developer, like you've mentioned over the past 20 years, I've been mostly centric around Microsoft technologies. Yeah, yeah. the same uh, goes for me as well. I've always been uh, a Microsoft T. Uh, I started out as a Java programmer, which was more an artifact of uh, of my schooling. <laughs> but after that, I got into Microsoft, and I'm very uh, grateful for that because Microsoft always provided me with uh, incredible tools like Visual Studio, which the other ecosystems still cannot say. You know, I've tried that, but the tooling just isn't uh, isn't up to par to incredible Visual Studio. So I'm very happy with, uh, with being a Microsoft-centric uh, developer. Very much so. And I've, you know what? what's even more surprising to me? Over the past decade, we have experienced at first hand Microsoft shifting from this large area reseller vendor of software for which you pay super expensive licenses and whatnot into one of the biggest players in the open source world. Whether we yeah. talk about .NET, whether we talk about Visual Studio. Visual Studio Code is one of the most forked, contributed projects on GitHub. And it's not the only one. Like Microsoft has their own Linux kernel that they use for all of the hardware switching and routing and whatnot in Azure. Um, they have their own kernels for other components and services and even hardware. They're one of the major contributors to Kubernetes. But people, regretfully, in some markets, don't see yet Microsoft as a big open source player who is contributing to the open source world yet. Um, others do. We know that they're one of the biggest vendors out there. Um, honestly, I appreciate them for for the shift they've done under Satya over the past decade. They think it's only for it's only for the better, and they think even better things are going to come because of that. Yeah, I totally agree. But uh, you know, that's not always clear to people from other ecosystems, and I think that's also a bit of marketing from uh, from the Microsoft side. It certainly is. So a big part of the Microsoft ecosystem, obviously, is Microsoft Azure, their public cloud offering. Uh, you use that. I use that as well. When did you get into using Microsoft Azure? Oh, it's a fun story because I actually started using it in 2010. And for people who are now going to open up Wikipedia, Azure was, found, <laughs> was, was publicly available in 2010. So I guess you could think of myself as one of these super nerdy individuals who wanted to test out what was called back then Windows Azure. And I vividly remember the days when I was telling people uh, at community events that I'm going to talk about Windows Azure, right? And before I would do my own presentation, some people would come up and talk to me and tell me, is there a way in which we can get a install code or a product key code for Windows Azure so that we can install it? Because I don't really like this Windows 7 thing. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of confusing back then if, if this uh, Windows Azure thing was going to replace Windows for, at some point. 
So I, and maybe I guess it will. Like maybe at some point yeah. we're all gonna use our mobile phones as fan clients. We're already seeing this in in the gaming industry, right? Where people start yeah. game their Xbox games on their on their or PlayStation or whatever have you on their mobile devices. Whether it is talking about the what do they call it? Game Game X console game stream. Or I don't even know the name for it. For God's sake, my apologies for that. Uh, but there's but there are other vendors who are doing the same thing. Like Google is doing this with I think they call it Stadia. Um, yeah. I know Sony is actually investing in into a similar technology, and we are, we're kind of experiencing this ubiquitous connectivity to our entertainment devices, to our work devices. We are, we see it in Azure with uh, with uh, Windows desktop services. We we see it in, in so many other services as well. Yeah, it's cloud first, definitely for for even for consumers, like you say. All the compute happens in the cloud. If you look at Netflix, for instance, you know we don't uh, run our media locally anymore. We just run it from the cloud. And the same goes for games as well. Like I don't buy game consoles anymore. I just use Google Stadia, for instance. Now I, I run the game uh, Cyberpunk uh, twenty seventy seven, and you know I don't have to worry about having a, a, a beefy enough PC or anything like that. I just hook up Stadia. As long as I have internet, it just works. And the cloud just takes care of that stuff for me. That's brilliant. So Azure is pretty cool. And I know you also use that in your company, Key Ticket Solutions, because you're also an entrepreneur and a founder of the company, Key Ticket Solutions. Can you uh, tell me what that company is all about and what you guys do? So Key Ticket Solutions was founded in 2011. And it was actually founded by the whole idea of taking part of the knowledge um, that we have already gained through ticketing system, like physical ticketing, ticket offices, venue stadiums and whatnot, and implementing that in a model, in a business model, which would no longer sell hardware and services. So it's actually part of a larger group of companies. It's a family-owned business, initially founded by my parents, which yes, does mean that you can tell that I work for my parents' company. Mm -hmm. um, it was founded 30 years ago in 1991, so almost 30 years ago. It's gonna turn 30 in just a couple of months. And um, we always were a organization more or less about software development around Microsoft technologies, even back in those days. At some point, the company was doing computer reselling back in the 90s, in the, in the early 90s and in the late 90s as well. But we were more or less developing software for computers, for uh, printing shops and whatnot. And at some point we got into the access control industry in the mid 90s. And from that point onward, we started creating some very interesting pieces of technology which were related to security, physical security. So for example, we had one of the largest installations of a surveillance system with private CCTV, so closed circuit television systems with surveillance cameras and whatnot, um, encompassing somewhere around 3,000 cameras back in the days when cameras were not network connected. Um, on an area that would spread across even 50 kilometers at some point, and wow. which would have an open CV-based artificial intelligence, as they call it these days, but back then it was just a trained model, that would determine if the employees were working in the right place or not, if they were trying to maneuver or use a piece of equipment that they were not um, authorized for or they were not trained for. And it's funny because at Build, I think it was in 2016, Microsoft, Build is the Microsoft Big Conference, as you know, right? Uh, the developer conference. At Build, they presented a solution where they were using, I believe, cognitive services, another Azure service, pretty much a building block, a Lego piece, where they would literally do the same thing. But this was 20 years later. 
So we started from that. We created a very interesting ticketing solutions based on proximity cards, on MyFair cards back in the day. I, viv I vividly remember that we equipped, I think it was in 2001 or 2002, one of the largest stadiums by that time in Romania with proximity cards um, that would not be reutilized, right? So you, you'd, you'd, dispose, you'd dispose them that would have chip cards and RFID antennas inside them, but they would look like a typical normal paper ticket and nobody would know. And that was the same technology that Allianz Arena has used to implement into the Allianz Arena in Germany next to Munich in 2001, right? So we are more or less always kind of very tech-savvy, aging Blatch technology implementers of sorts. But we also realized that because of this, we ended up selling 42-unit racks to organizations. Um, and these racks would be filled with always-on SQL clusters by the end of the uh, early 2000 years uh, with storage area networks, with a bunch of hardware equipment and software um, pieces of software that would be almost impossible for the organization that we would be selling them to maintain. More often yeah. than not, because we're selling ticketing solutions to football teams, to venues and whatnot, these organizations, which are our customers, would not necessarily have an IT department. So for example, if there were an IT department at one of the football teams, um, we joke about it inside, but just bear with me. They would have an IT department of two people working in shifts. One of them, an expert at installing drivers for printers, and the other one, an expert at resetting passwords <laughs> for Active Directory. <laughs> and they were obviously overwhelmed by now maintaining what is more or less a small data center for many organizations. So yeah. we immediately realized that number one, this was super expensive for most of our customers to buy, but we still were encouraged by the fact that we, and to our, to our customers, by the fact that we are using bleeding edge, edge technology, anything that people would not see by that time. And number two, we realized that a software as a service model would make more sense for us. So there were two options. Either we would fork the company and create a bunch of different branches around the country and around Europe. Or number two, we would look into what we know today as the cloud. Back in those days, the only big, the only cloud vendor, like the proper cloud vendor, not the hosting vendor, was Amazon with Amazon AWS. But Microsoft was just announcing and talking about what was called back then Red Dog. And that's how we started to think about this idea of running a infrastructure in the cloud and then using those services and creating some sort of a hybrid network connectivity and creating some sort of a, what we call today, an IoT edge device on premises to maintain part of the responsibility for access control at, through the turnstiles and so on and so forth. So that's how we started the Kitical Solutions, but the overall history of the organization and the products that we have is actually way beyond that. And the name of the company actually comes from the product we used to sell in the early 2000s, which was called Key Ticket Stadium. Um, there are no many stadiums, obviously, and regretfully today to equip anymore, especially because of the pandemic. So this year has been a complete chaos. But we have started to create other similar products for other industries, for other markets, for other use case scenarios. So ticket park, key ticket, sorry, Key ticket parking is one of the products that we are using for parking S control management for private parking lots, for public parking spaces, uh, which also uses a bunch of AI for license plate recognition systems for determining if you're a hotel guest so that we know to ring the concierge and help you out with your luggage and so on and so forth. And we do a bunch of integrations behind and we use a bunch of integration services with, because of that. 
Ah, uh-huh, very cool. So you solved a problem that a lot of companies uh, have and had is that uh, a customer just wants functionality. And, you know, as a software slash hardware vendor, you then try to solve that with a bunch of software, which might require custom hardware or a complete infrastructure that you then uh, bring to the customer. But they don't care about all that stuff and they don't have the knowledge to do anything with that. They just want the functionality. And so you've solved that by going to the cloud, which enables you then to create a software as a service offering that uh, you can just sell to the customer as functionality so that they don't have to uh, care for whatever it's running on or, or how that even works. They just care for the functionality, which is great. And that's one of the big use cases, I think, of the cloud and of Azure in this case. Now, um, I saw in a post on social media that uh, Key Ticket Solutions was in the private preview for the Azure Communication Services, which was one of the new services that was announced in uh, at Microsoft Ignite, which is another big uh, Microsoft conference. Can you explain what Azure Communication Services is or are and how you guys use that? Yeah, sure. And I do want to completely agree and say it out loud. I fully agree with you. People don't care as much about the hardware as they care about the functionality or the service or the problem that you're fixing or, or providing them. And we have yeah. experienced this at first hand because we're also developers of hardware products. So we develop our own access control readers for the turnstiles. We develop our own um, for integration, of course, don't get me wrong. I mean, we are not builders of motherboards or anything like that. We integrate uh, SBCs, which stands for single board computers. We embed a bunch of com- microprocessors. Maybe it's a small device, maybe it's a larger device, whatever have you. And this actually brings me to ACS as well. ACS stands for Azure Communication Services, like you have mentioned, and it was a service that we um, got access and very grateful for Microsoft and for all the team behind ACS for for granting us private access to the service um, back in March. And it is effectively a service that gives you, just like cognitive services, which I've mentioned before, a building block for communication. So what does that mean? Well, for example, in our cases, we were required whenever, say, a chauffeur, a car driver has a problem with their license plate not being recognized or their subscription card not working anymore or whatever have you, they would sit in front of the barrier, right? So they would need assistance. The easiest thing to do is to have a human being assist you. We try to do as much as possible with AI, but the reality is that AI at this point is is not really intelligent, if you ask me. It's a bunch of computing services that recognize based on particular patterns, and these patterns, if they're well modeled, then everything works. But there's always going to be a niche case that you haven't thought about. So a human is still required. What we did was that we created our own voice over IP-based communication system. And it took us a tremendous amount of time to hook it up and create and use the proper libraries that were available or not available, figure out open source libraries that we could use or not use, determine whether we want to use an SIP, which is another protocol that you would typically use for addressing uh, the, the communication, whether we wanted to use RTSP for video streaming from those cameras that would normally be installed for license plate recognition so that we can tell visually, so or actually the human can tell visually if the individual speaking from the access control reader actually is legit and he is telling the right thing or not lying or whatnot, right? Because that happens. People try to sneak in a private parking lot every now and then for various reasons. Maybe it's because mm-hmm. they want to steal a car or maybe this is what they just 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 journalists and they want to get into a parking lot to take some pictures of somebody or whatnot. We have seen so many different 
uh, interesting um, <laughs> scenarios of such. But nevertheless, we found ourselves spending a lot of time seven-ish years ago writing a piece of software that was more or less a functionality sporadically being used. And I immediately realized when I found out about ACS that there is a major opportunity for us to use a service through a REST API. So you do a bunch of HTTP calls at the end of the day from our devices. And because it's HTTP based, we would not worry about the underlying supported protocols. Keep in mind, the devices that we are developing are not computers. Well, they are computers, but they don't run the Windows that runs on your machine. They don't run Mac. They don't run the same Linux that you run on your machine. We modularize even Windows, and we decide which components of Windows would be installed on our Windows CE-based installations. And yes, we are still using Windows CE. Windows CE stands for Compact Edition. It's part of the embedded family. Embedded is the forefather of what we call today IoT. We've gone with these so for many years. It, it, I almost feel like a grandfather, grandfather not talking about them. <laughs> but nevertheless, the thing about ACS is that it has simplified our own development story. And because of the pandemic, I know everyone is blaming the pandemic. And we're just completely rid of about and bored about talking to, about the subject anymore. But the reality is that people started to communicate more virtually, at least virtually, right? So undeniably, there has to be a technology which makes people communicate and work together. Zoom, Teams, Slack, these are fantastic pieces of tech, but they're designed for one purpose, which is communication during meeting, file sharing, collaboration through text, and so on and so forth. What if you want to create another means of communication for those who are um, remote or spread across a large distance and they still want to be able to communicate? So for example, there's a fellow MVP who I'm, who I'm looking up to, um, Denny, in, based in, um, in the lower lands, but you probably know this better than I do. He's either based in Belgium or in, in the Netherlands, but right now I'm, <laughs> I'm looking up to him and I don't, don't even know where he is at because I meet him at so many different conferences, <laughs> right? Used to meet him at so many different conferences that I'm not sure which, which country you're in. Denny de Klerk. Yeah, that is right. That, he's from Belgium, yeah. He's from Belgium. Thank you for that. So he, if, for example, created a fantastic piece of product which helps people who are um, impaired, hearing impaired, visually impaired, have a communication by having ACS spin up or cook up the communication and have then having a client that he wrote himself to help these individuals determine which buttons to call, to press, determine how the communication should occur, explaining what, they, what the other party sees and so on and so forth. So long story short, ACS is effectively a building block, a REST API that you could use to connect people together visually by using video communication, audio communication, screen sharing. You even have the ability these days to interoperate and get interoperability with Teams, which is, in my opinion, amazing. So imagine yourself trying to create some sort of a communication application software, maybe for conferences, maybe for, um, for, for podcasts, just like this one where rather than only having voice, you only want to join the conversation with somebody who's using Teams. So they don't need to install another application, they don't need to buy another license. ACS is effectively based on the same technology that Teams is based as. So it is a proven technology which scales, which can grow, and can support your business effectively. Yeah, that, that is great. And that's a, a common thread in uh, stories of Azure, I think, as in, 
you guys were creating this technology by yourself from scratch custom years before this uh, was even available in Azure. And now it's as simple as just doing a REST call in Azure. So all that custom stuff just wasn't necessary or is it necessary anymore? I must say it was necessary back then, but not anymore. And, you know, the same happens with uh, things like web farms and scaling out websites and uh, keeping uh, SQL servers always available, like you said, with always on clusters back in the day. We don't have to do that anymore. It's, it's as simple as a, a slider in the Azure portal or in AWS for that matter. It works the same thing. Yeah. So all these things that used to take uh, hours and, and weeks and a lot of expertise and, and a lot of money to set up and maintain now are just condensed to simple functionalities that you just enable and that just work, which is great, which basically means that, you know, the cloud does most of the heavy lifting for you so that you can just focus on the things that actually add value to your customers. That is very correct, Barry. And it's not only that, but it's also the fact that, look, we did the math right, and I am I'm, I'm positive about it. The fact that we have developed for years the same piece of technology, which is a, su a supporting dependency at the, at the end of the day in our projects, um, is now replaced is by the result of the fact that every single piece of software that you ever write, if you want to maintain it and run it for the long run, it needs patching, it needs updates, it needs support yeah. and additional compatibility models. Um, when we started writing it, we were using TLS 1.1. TLS 1.1, everyone knows hopefully by now, is an not trusted uh, uh, TLS service or TLS protocol anymore. So you should use TLS 1.2. Implementing and injecting TLS 1.2 in our libraries was more difficult than you would think because we would have to write the code for that, right? So now, rather than writing code whenever a new protocol is, uh, is coming around or whenever a new operating system has to be supported in our devices or whenever a new type of devices is necessary to be supported, or maybe there's a different protocol that you would communicate with the peripherals, maybe with your video cameras. Initially, our cameras would be immediately connected through USB. Later on, we move, moved on from USB over using the RTSP protocol to get a right real-time stream from, from the network-connected camera instead. Right? All of these mm -hmm. small changes that you have to implement in code mean both time and money and frustration, of course. So using a service that does that for you in a rather cheap way is a no-brainer, in my opinion. And when we did the math, it turned out that it's actually almost 10 times cheaper for us to use a hosted service, granted, providing SLA for that service, because otherwise, well, it's mm. not a service that we would be using. And we would still be able to innovate by the money that we have saved by not developing a dependency, a supporting dependency in our, in our, in our application. Yeah, and, and I think the reason why that is so relatively cheap is because Azure can scale, Microsoft can scale these things out. So there are many, many, many people using these services and paying for them, which means that they can uh, pay uh, their running costs and their infrastructure and their developers from all that money instead of you paying uh, your people to do that and your own infrastructure. So I think the economies of scale make, make it that this stuff is relatively cheap. Very much so. And the scalability comes into a factor. So for us, the for this particular application, for the parking application, using ACS in a global geo-redundant service doesn't really make sense. But mm. if you would think about using any of the Azure services 
globally, because maybe you have customers in Asia and in Europe and in North America or wherever have you. The idea of using Azure, in my opinion, is again a no-brainer, because number one, not only does it scale, but it's almost omnipresent. I mean, it's available in 60 plus regions, whatever the number is, because every month it's a different number. So by the time people are listening to this recording, it may actually be a 70 plus number or whatever the case. Microsoft yeah. just last week has announced three new data centers in, in uh, Denmark. So the idea of having omnipresence with your services where your customers or potential customers are at is a no-brainer. If you would not have the cloud in general speaking, not necessarily Azure, but in particular Azure in this case, you would not have the ability of meeting your customers where they are at, unless you would obviously host servers, run servers, buy from somebody else's infrastructure, some computers, and so on and so forth. So why do I particularly praise Azure for this? Because if you look at the numbers that, say, for example, Google Cloud Engine and that AWS have around the world, and you combine them together, it's still a smaller number than Azure has in the regions. Like it's still less than 60 plus, whatever the number is. I think it's 29 plus 24 respectively. If you add them up, it doesn't still make 60 plus, right? Yeah. And on top of that, people don't realize this, but Microsoft is running on its own backbone network. So all of these regions are connected by Microsoft's own fiber under the ocean and you name it. In fact, they have actually had several years ago a... Um, a very interesting comparison where they would say that they not only have the second dark large, uh, largest dark fiber network in the world, but if you would spread across all the fiber they have through data centers, inside data centers, and across the regions and the data centers they have connected, you'd go, you would be able to go to the moon and back three times. I mean, what about that? <laughs> That's insane. It is. So, you know, those are all reasons why Azure is uh, is very cool and um, why it does a lot of things for you. But uh, that's what people always ex expect from MVPs and RDs to say, of course, <laughs> <laughs> why Microsoft is such a cool company. But I'm sure there are also negative parts about uh, using the cloud and Azure in particular. Are there things that you've ran into with your uh, company? Look... Microsoft is a big organization. They have employed almost close to 100,000 people directly. And God knows what the number is if you add up the vendors and so on and so forth. <sighs> Inevitably, not everything is amazingly cool, as we like to promote it sometimes, especially during our conferences or, or public engagements. Um, I did come across many scenarios as such. I think, generally speaking, one of the most cumbersome things if you don't use Azure on a regular basis is that if you use it sporadically, maybe every other month, you will actually see a completely different experience UI-wise, documentation-wise, CLI-wise, which doesn't mean that your old script won't work, but it does mean that almost every other time, if you're not using it on a regular basis, you are going to have to learn a new experience. Mm -hmm. The learning curve, per se, is not very steep when it comes to UI-based tools because there is a major consistency for which I very much appreciate the UI engineers at Microsoft, whether that is the, whether we're talking about the Azure portal, whether we're talking about desktop tools, uh, whether you look at, say, SQL Server data tools or SQL Server um, Management Studio, right? They're completely different. One of them is cross-platform, the other one is not. One of them is designed to be an Electron app, 
actually based on the same Visual Studio Code foundation that the other one is based on called Monaco. The other one is a completely Win32 application only working on Windows based on GDA plus underneath the hood and MFCs and whatnot. But look, even when you go from your father's application to maintain a technology to your new modern electron-based application to maintain the same technology, there is a major consistency that you walk through, right? So I appreciate Microsoft for that. But there's always, because of the fast-paced nature of Azure and the cloud in general, but particularly Azure, there's always new things that you got to learn, new things that you got to keep up with. In fact, if you look at the REST APIs, you're going to find that there's major functionalities that people don't know of because, number one, they're either too new and they were not documented yet. Number two, the UI was not able to keep up with the changes. So even the UI, which is always so quickly shifting and changing and updating, even that is actually several steps behind the capabilities of the service that you're using. Say, for example, app services. Not a lot of people know that in app services, you can configure an access conditional list not only on IP addresses, but also on service management tags. And if you use the REST API, you can configure, for example, the front door, which is a networking-based uh, service, to send its header, its particular header in the HTTP request, so that you accept, exclusively accept requests coming from that particular front door of your own type. When you look in the UI, there is no mentioning of that. When you look in documentation, there is no mentioning of that. But finding all these capabilities is, which in my opinion are of paramount importance, whether it's about security, networking, you name it, well, they are more or less a bit of a Sherlock operation. You gotta figure them out, you gotta investigate them, you gotta do a trial and error to determine what is actually working as per your expectation, what is not. Sometimes you gotta reach out to your friends, which are fellow MVPs, and sometimes you gotta write a message on the MVP distribution list to actually tell if you're doing the right thing or not. And sometimes you got to reach out to Microsoft directly and the product managers and the product teams to talk to them directly about that. But this is a byproduct, I would say, of the fast-paced nature of Microsoft and in particular Azure, but also in the cloud in general, as I said, which means that there's always new investments that have the outcome of an amazing piece of technology or amazing feature. And these features, believe it or not, they're all rooted in the customer feedback. So the feedback that Huberry give, the feedback that I give, the feedback that organizations and partners offer, and so on and so forth. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about Microsoft. They're super open to feedback, gathering feedback, and incorporating that feedback as soon as possible in their products. Yeah. Yeah, that that's a, can definitely be a hurdle, especially as there are so many teams involved. There's a documentation team, there's a UI team, there's an API team, there's a services team, and they don't always talk to each other that well uh, within Microsoft because it is so large. And that means that sometimes, like you say, you know, documentation might not be up to date when something changes. So it's difficult to, uh, uh, reality might be diff different than what you read in the docs. Very much so. And it's not always the same uh, different groups of people working on different aspects of the same technology as documentation and uh, UI and API individuals and so on, as you've mentioned. Sometimes it's even engineers in the same company doing similar tech, which feels like it's competing, right? You have experienced yeah. this definitely at first hand, where you are learning from, for example, as a developer from the Windows team, that the next big thing is going to be universal Windows platform or so many other technologies that they've had over the past decade. 
But then as a .NET enthusiast, you're going to learn from the .NET team that they're also working on their own desktop technology for desktop-based applications based on Blazor yeah. with MAUI. Or you're going to learn about the projects that they support from either Microsoft employees working on them directly as an open source project or by supporting MVPs working on them, such as Electron-based applications written uh, in, in, say, Blazor, which is a completely different thing, right? But they're all, at the end of the day, desktop-based apps. Then you're going to learn about Xamarin doing whatever other crazy thing. <laughs> and the question yeah. at the consumer inevitably becomes, what is the proper way, if there is a proper way, to develop desktop apps on Windows? Because I don't care about who develops what, right? I just want to do an amazing piece of an application that I'm going to share, put it up there on the internet or through the Microsoft Store and have people download it. And these decision that, the decisions that you have to make as a consumer, as a developer, are decisions that, in my opinion, sh should not be taken or should not even be necessary. And that is inevitably the byproduct of having such a large organization where sometimes the left doesn't know what the right does. But it is also a big major support competition in general. It's a big major support for greater technology. So having, having what to choose from inevitably also means that there are competing products, even though doing the same thing, which might be better for one particular scenario than the other. So they either learn from each other or they decide that there is a better technology for doing one thing and one thing only. So they're going to invest in that one further, going further. Yeah. Yeah. So indeed, that's all because Microsoft's such a big company. It and is. that's definitely uh, not per se a bad thing. But like you say, Azure moves extremely quickly and things change and there's new services and things go away and new features. How do you make sure that you, yourself, and your employees uh, keep up with all that knowledge? This is a fantastic question because one of the things that our colleagues praise us for as an organization, as a team who works on a regular basis with Azure is that we use bleeding edge technology at all times. There is no exception about that. Sometimes, I kid you not, some of our consultants would go into fights with some of our customers because we are using bleeding edge technology. Sometimes our customers are right. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes we're right. It depends. And keeping up inevitably because one becomes one of the most difficult aspects of the entire conversation, even with our customers or even internally. So whether it is reading blog posts, whether it is reading the news feed on blog.azure.microsoft, actually it's azure.com slash blog these days because they've changed that, whether it's keeping up with the community or Twitter, we all do it in our own way. There is no magic rule on how you can keep up with one technology because it's so spread across. I mean, for example, if you're an app Azure Functions or an app services um, enthusiast, you might probably know that app services, the team, have their own blog available, which is not on the Microsoft blogs uh, uh, hosting. They have a yeah. blog all by themselves. Actually, some of their FTEs write on Medium as well, where they don't write what the, what the company wants them to write, but they rather write what their expertise is from within the organization, obviously only the things that they can publicly share. Then there's also a major, in my opinion, a major good way to keep up to date with what the teams are working on by actually following their activity on GitHub. Almost everything when it comes to Azure, technology-wise, tooling-wise, CLI-wise, is actually done publicly. And before they actually announce things, especially with Azure Functions, which I'm a major fan of, you can actually tell what's going to happen. But if you just simply follow their pull requests, if you follow the code <laughs> they're writing, and so on and so forth. Yeah. 
And funny enough, if you open up issues as you're trying to test the things that they are doing, and this is public information, right? They're going to answer and tell you what you're doing wrong or what you're doing right or whether that is expected and the known issue and expected not to work properly and so on and so forth. I remember doing this with what we know today as durable entities. Durable entities were not announced and were not up on the roadmap for months. And all of the code that they would write back then, they had different names for it, and durable tasks and durable whatever, uh, was publicly available. And you could double check it. You could test it out. Uh, initially, you couldn't test it, test it out, really, because you were missing the function CLI tools necessary to actually spin them, up, spin them up. But nevertheless, you could start thinking about your applications in terms of a virtual actor proxy implementation, just like you would do in Orleans, for example. But from the perspective of having Azure storage underneath the hood and using an event source-based programming model and so on and so forth. Yeah, indeed. So you can uh, definitely follow all the blogs and and even uh, GitHub to keep up to date nowadays because everything is done in the open. Back when when we were working in the same office, everyone, every single one of us, because now we're some of us are working remotely, some of us are working in the office. It's not as fun. I'll give you that because it feels like an empty office <laughs> almost every single time because of the pandemic. Um, back then, when we were all in the same office, we would inevitably have somebody take their headphones off and shout in the room, you won't believe what Microsoft just did. I just came across this. Hey, everyone, just look look out for that. <laughs> um, and this, yeah. in my opinion, is still a great way to share information. It's energetic, it's enthusiastic, and it also sh tells you more about the passion an individual has and what they exactly want to follow. Sometimes as an entrepreneur, as a manager, as a team leader, it's difficult to understand what people are up in or, or, or what they're more into. So supporting this innovative environment, supporting this idea of um, fail fast, test things out, try it yourself, um, is, is a major, major way f as an organization to ensure that your employees stay and keep up to date with the technology. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more with that. All right, we are nearing the end of the episode. Uh, where can people find more about uh, key ticket solutions and about yourself? Uh, they got to wait for our new website update, which is overdue for years probably, but which is actually planned for the uh, beginning of next year. And same story happens with my website. I, I'm like one of those barbers who never barbers or, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I do regret for not having a proper website these days. It has been updated in probably a couple of years now. Um, which, which is something I'm very ashamed about. But at the same time, I try to be as active as possible on social media, uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, mostly on LinkedIn, I'll be honest with you. I keep up with LinkedIn as much as possible. And FYI, depending on when this episode will air, there will also be an Alex Mang YouTube channel where I will share some of the tips and tricks I've been learning for over the past decade when with using Azure and about using Azure and so on. No plans on announcing updates because everyone else is doing that. So why have another news reporter? But rather, it's only going to be about short videos, tips and tricks, sharing knowledge, and so on and so forth. Oh, excellent. Oh, can't wait for that. Thank you. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure to uh, put all of that stuff in the show notes so that people can find everything. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Barry. Okay. Thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure having uh, being here. And again, thank you for the invitation. Okay. This was another episode of Developer Weekly, and we'll talk to you next week. 
Could you please go to ratethispodcast.com slash developerweekly and rate this podcast and leave a review. This helps me to spread the word about the podcast and helps other people to find it. That is ratethispodcast.com slash developerweekly. Thank you so much.